Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to Australia in the World. I'm Darren Lim from the ANU and it's late Sunday afternoon on the 29th of October. Prime Minister Albanese has been to Washington this past week. And towards the end of this week, he's headed to Beijing. And so there's a lot to talk about. With me today, again, is I think probably the best friend of the podcast, Stephen Jedgetts of the ABC. Stephen, welcome back once more. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Darren. It's great that I've got an upgrade. It's it's very (laughs) flattering. (laughs) Well, while the PM's US trip is more recent, I think... The most interesting news from the past few weeks comes from Australia's bilateral relationship with China. And before I turn to you, Stephen, I want to frame the conversation by describing a model, surprise, surprise, that I've been using to understand events as they unfold. It begins with the recognition that the warming, or maybe better said, stabilisation of the relationship, has seen us enter into a bargaining phase. Both Canberra and Beijing want things from the other side and have things to offer in return. Successful cooperation is doing deals, both sides offering and receiving something of value. And that could be anything, doing or not doing something, saying or not saying something, etc. The reason states cooperate like this is because of interdependence. Each has the capacity through its behaviour to affect the interests of the other, positively or negatively, which means both want to influence each other's conduct. Deals are done when both sides judge they will make each better off. However, from Australia's perspective, mutually beneficial cooperation is complicated by at least three factors. First, we are in an era of heightened geopolitical rivalry. This means both sides care not only about what they get from the deal, but they also care to some extent how much the other wins. The concept of relative gains. And this will be something our partners, like the United States, are monitoring closely as well. Second is the perennial problem of domestic politics. You don't want to agree to deals that will expose you to meaningful criticism from domestic political rivals. The Albanese government does not want to be open to the criticism from the coalition that it is soft on China. And this risk of domestic backlash is exacerbated by geopolitics since the public already holds largely unfavourable views of China. And third, and this is perhaps different between Australia and China, Australia has the interest in maintaining the integrity of its policy-making processes. Some decisions lie within the discretion of ministers, but others sit with independent agencies and are supposed to be free from political influence. But if a policy change that Beijing wants sits with such an independent agency, such as the Anti-Dumping Commission that we'll come to, Canberra cannot necessarily promise that policy change. And if it did, that might require politically interfering with this independent process, which is problematic. So this adds all adds up to a complicated and cross-cutting set of interests. So I wanted to turn to you now, Stephen, but I want to sort of posit a crude ledger from the bargaining relationship and the deals done over the past few months. For Australia, we have the relaxation of multiple trade blockages that form part of the coercion campaign, most prominently Bali. We have an invitation to the Prime Minister to visit Beijing. 
And perhaps biggest of all, we have the return of Chung Lei after three years in jail. For China, we have several foreign investment approvals from earlier in the year, albeit paired with rejections at the same time in other, um, other requests. We have the decision to suspend the Bali WTO case, which most expected would have been a victory for Australia. We have the decision this past week not to cancel the Darwin port lease. And we have several omissions. There have not been any human rights sanctions uh, related to Xinjiang. There has not been, many would say, a scaling up of cooperation with Taiwan that some, some argue has merited. And of course, since taking office, the government has sharply toned down its rhetoric. And then just this week, we have a possible deal in which wine tariffs from China, also widely understood to be part of the coercion campaign, would be removed in the next six months or so, and in return, potentially, perhaps grouped together, Australia would allow anti-dumping duties on wind towers and possibly some other products to expire. So, Stephen... So what, I want to start with, with, with both the Darwin port decision and the possible wind turbine decision as well, both of which are, I think, notionally supposed to be independent of government. So can you talk through those processes and, and whether you have seen any evidence of political influence over either? Thanks, Darren. Yeah, no, I'd be delighted to. And they're both really interesting decisions. I, I think they are, though, in some ways, substantively a bit different mm -hmm. um, because, yeah, when it comes to the wind towers... There's no doubt that is meant to be a process, at least notionally, that's totally independent of government, you know, by an independent organisation. The Darwin Port decision wasn't really independent, quote unquote, in exactly the same way, because even though the study was being conducted by the Prime Minister's department, uh, it was still in the end simply making a recommendation to the okay. government. And then the government had to decide whether or not it would take up that recommendation. And whilst I'm sure PM&C took a very hard look at it without, you know, any instructions to necessarily reach one conclusion or another, it's not really the same in any meaningful way as, a, as an organisation that sits outside the reach of the government. This is, this is the, um, you know, this is the Prime Minister's own department. And in the okay. end, it's a decision that's made by, by Cabinet or by NSC. Um, all of that said... Um, I think it is worth definitely, as you say, going through these two decisions, which are both really substantively interesting, uh, and ask exactly the question you did. How did this decision-making process work? Let's start with the most straightforward one. Let's go with wind turbines. So this is basically a decision by the Anti-Dumping Commission to allow tariffs to expire in April next year, rather than being extended. Um, now, I cannot see any hard evidence um, anywhere that this was a decision that was in any way taken by the Anti-Dumping Commission after the government heaped pressure upon it. In fact, people who know the commission better than I do um, say that it would be very hard to imagine it being in any way influenced. Uh, in other words, you know, it's basically beyond a ministerial arm twist, uh, to use the phrase that one person used. And when I read the commission's report, which for my sins I did, or at least the vast bulk of it, you know, it's not the most gripping read, very thorough, but it's not <laughs> compelling reading. Um, to my untrained eyes, its case seemed to stack up. Um, I, at least I couldn't spot any sort of attempt of them uh, here. I couldn't spot an attempt to try and, you know, paint the tariffs as, uh, as doing one thing when in fact they do the other. So on the face of it, the, 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 the decision on, on the wind turbines does not appear to be 
influenced at all by the government's political imperatives or broader strategic imperatives to stabilize relations with China, despite the fact that China has very clearly tried to link it as part of a, you know, as a part of a group deal. Um, and both the foreign ministry and the commerce ministry have explicitly linked it with the wine uh, agreement, implying, if not stating, that there's a, a quid pro quo involved. I, I can't see any evidence of that. And instead, it's the case that what has changed is economic conditions. The initial justification for the anti-dumping duties has largely sort of fallen away because of a demand for larger wind turbines. Yeah, that and we the government make ourselves and the is government right? and the government's appetite and desire for you know uh, greater climate ambition. Right, that's mm. going to need an awful lot of wind. I don't have the report at my, at my mm. hand, uh, to hand at the moment, but one of the main points um, that come one of the points that comes out of it is if you want to meet these targets, you're going to need an awful lot of capacity, mm. um, and Australia doesn't have that capacity. Now, it is worth noting some people in Australia have challenged the the assessment and say that mm -hmm. no, we need to do more to build up an industry. So I'm not presenting this decision as wholly writ. I, I can't really judge. I just don't know enough. But I guess I'm just saying there's no evidence that they've sold out one industry here in order to, uh, to uh, secure a commitment on wine from Beijing. Could it then be the case that this is just sort of coincidence that in a couple of weeks before the PM visits, you've had an independent body make a decision that the government says, okay, great, we can now use this, perhaps let Beijing know just before it gets publicly released um, as a convenient prid quo quo in return for wine. And that if this decision had not been made the way that it was or with this timing, we wouldn't have seen you know, any deal on wine or any plan to, to relax wine, the review that's been announced by Beijing. The, the double coincidence, right, is that the WTO decision apparently has also been drafted. And so it seems like you've got a confluence of different things all yeah. happening at the same time that in theory are all independent, but it all just looks very, it all very looks convenient. convenient, right? Yeah. And and like the, the deep cynic in me also wants to suspect something along those lines. I guess all I'm saying is not that I can rule out any government arm twisting, mm -hmm. uh, either over the substance of the decision or on the timing, perhaps even more so. It's just I can't track down any evidence mm, on it. And yep. On the face of it, you can make a plausible case. Now, I, I, I have not come across anything in my travels, I guess is what mm. I'm saying, to point yep. towards it being anything other than a rather convenient coincidence. Mm. It doesn't mean that it is a coincidence. I don't have any absolute proof of that. Perhaps I'm being hopelessly naive. But if I'm you know, looking around as a journo for evidence that something is whiffy here, I haven't been able to find yep. it. Fair enough. I can accept that at face value. Okay, Darwin Port. Yeah, more complex uh, and more tricky on a number of fronts. It's worth remembering that the Prime Minister asked for this review a, a long time ago, right? <laughs> I think it was 13 months ago from memory. I need to check that timeline, but it was a good long while ago. I think it is undeniable, although I don't have any hard evidence of this, that the timing of this announcement has been made with one eye on the Prime Minister's trip to Beijing. And my suspicion, I can't prove it, but my very deep suspicion is that the government's decision to both reveal the nature of the advice, to accept that advice and to make it all public within a couple of weeks of the PM's visit is very, very opportunistic. Not to criticise it for them for that, but I think that's just the reality. They wanted to hand China a win. At least when it comes to the timing of the decision, I think it's undeniable that it was dropped at a time to secure that win, to build up a more festive or at least a more agreeable atmosphere in the lead up to the, uh, to the, to the, to the state visit. So that's the timing. The substance is more tricky because 
a few things are worth noting here. The first is Prime Minister and Cabinet is not the first government agency to come to the conclusion that any security risks from the Darwin port lease can be managed. We've had now three reports effectively that have come to pretty similar conclusions. Now, we don't know exactly what the reasoning is. The most recent report, for example, we simply don't have a copy of it, not even a redacted version. We've simply got a one a half a page press release from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet put out at 2.30pm on a Friday um, with nine or 10 lines of text. That's, that's all we've got. Um, but it is not the first review to have at least apparently reached that conclusion that these risks can be managed. So, you know, in that sense, I don't think we've got any hard evidence that the government has made a sort of fatal compromise on national security in order to score a, a victory with China over wine. But I think it's also worth noting that a number of people in Labor have been pretty open that, you know, even though this review has handed down this finding that these risks can be managed, the, the situation is not an ideal one. And there are at least some within Labor who say, including the you know the deputy prime minister who say look we can we can manage this situation but it's not a decision we would have made if we were the northern territory government in 2015 we would not have signed on the line so that gives you a clear idea that at the very least around the margins there is a sense of vulnerability that this lease evokes within the australian system fairly or not and i don't think they'd be talking about risks to be managed if there were absolutely no risks now, I don't really know what's in the report. I've had a few chats with a few people who have hinted about what might be in it and what some of the mitigation measures might be, but I, I can't really make an independent judgment as to whether those risks can, in fact, be safely mitigated or not. Some within the national security establishment or those who came out not that long ago have written pretty fiery pieces arguing that no matter what um, the justification is, there's simply no good reason to leave it in the hands of a, of a Chinese, Chinese company, even if we do have the powers to quickly seize it back um, if necessary in any sort of um, in extremist situation. But I, I think it's undeniable that the government has at the very least made a political calculation here or a foreign policy calculation that potentially the security benefits that might be gained from varying the lease or seizing it are not worth the costs that it would incur to the broader bilateral relationship. That's not accusing the government of selling out national security or anything like that. They've simply made a judgment. Um, and it's very difficult for me to make any sort of judgment as to whether it's a smart one or not. But I, I think the government has made a calculation here. It has made a concession to Beijing that perhaps it would not like to be in the position where it has to make. Um, and exactly what the implications of that are, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, and it's it's another reminder of sort of Maxim has come up on the podcast many times before, you know, all foreign policy is domestic policy, but also all domestic policy is, is foreign policy. Um, and that puts governments in uncomfortable situations where you've got a new set of equities that ideally wouldn't you wouldn't need to consider them but you do and I, I think back to some raids on some Chinese journalists a few years ago yeah that I remember Alan and I discussing this that presumably there was a process that was conducted inside home affairs or whoever was doing it um, and normally you would expect DFAD or any foreign policy angle never to be on the table um, but if you maintain that policy purity, you, know, you are creating, you know, you're, in, you're in engaging other equities, whether you yeah. like it or not. And you can be a purist if you want to, but 
you know, that has consequences for the national interest. There's no right answer here because you also you then don't want to have a foreign policy opponent you know, institutionally built into a process, especially legal processes, which was, I think the ASIO raised, right? You'd have to go and get a warrant from a judge and so forth. You don't want to have a foreign policy component there. But the reality is, on some level, governments have to make a messy set of trade-offs in these decisions. Yeah. You know, I, I just think that zooming out, you know, in my assessment, it is in the national interest for Australia to pursue different forms of cooperation with Beijing. And that is going to mean sometimes that Beijing is going to get some quote unquote wins. The pie has to be divided up you know, into slices. You, you don't get to eat the whole thing. And in actual fact, Australia is probably getting a much larger slice of the pie than you might expect given the material power of the, of the two sides. Typically, larger countries have more leverage and get a larger slice of pie as a result. So we're doing pretty well. But that doing pretty well is not the same as winning on everything and being able to prioritise a certain set of equities, say national security above all else, as, as you engage in the negotiation. No, as ever, Darren, that's really pithily put. And I, I really like the way that you, you frame that there. I just make one point, and that is all of the quote unquote wins that we are chalking up at the moment, and they are real and substantive in the sense that they deliver real benefits to people, whether that's Chung Lei, you know, freed from a airless room in in, um, in, in Beijing, uh, or to Bali and perhaps even wine exporters who will be yes. able to take product back into China and make awfully large amounts of money as a result. Um, all of these quote unquote wins is essentially just us regaining ground that should never have been clawed away from us in the first place. Now, you know, it's probably completely futile to, to whinge about this, but it's still worth pointing it out. All of the trade barriers that were put up not only broke, you know, break the, the basic tenets of, um, you know, of uh, the free trade agreement, uh, but also the, the basic rules of international trade, right? Um, they were coercive in nature. They were done as a piece of political punishment to achieve a foreign policy and a political aim. Uh, so the fact that we're clawing back this ground should not make us, I don't feel, particularly grateful towards China. No. Um, they're simply restoring the balance to, to, to where it was. Um, so I, I, I say that not to uh, downplay the significance of what the government's achieved, because, you know, pulling back 18 of the 20 billion in, in trade punishments is no small feat and no doubt took an awful lot of work, painstaking negotiation and careful diplomacy. Securing Chung Lei's release. The more we learn about it, the more the more difficult and painstaking a process it seems. So, I'm not playing down those achievements. Just to, I guess to make the broader point that I don't think that the concessions from China, however meaningful, are necessarily winning them an awful amount of credit within the government's ranks. Because quite rightly, the government looks at these things as uh, essentially essentially impositions that were made on Australia um, that should not have been made in the first place, even if the government believes that the, the Morrison government brought it upon Australia through its uh, unnecessarily intemperate or hot-headed rhetoric. Yeah, and that kind of, I've got two reactions to that. Um, the first is that, of course, this is not how Beijing sees it. You know, they would argue that their policy grievances predate you know, the coercion campaign, whether it's blocking Huawei um, or even just the announcement of the, the call for the inquiry. Um, and so, we might see our grievances as legitimate and theirs as illegitimate, but you know that, that that goes both ways. And in many ways, welcome to international politics. You know, if you are, as to come back to my earlier point, if you're going to be a purist about it and say, well, you should never have done the things you did to us, but of course, what we did to you was okay, 
that the result of this is you're going to narrow the scope for cooperation, perhaps almost to zero, and that comes at a cost to the national interest. So, you know, that I think I, I take your point entirely, but at some point you've got to be willing to do the deal. And look, the Chinese have faced a similar challenge in response to the Trump trade, trade tariffs, which, which came out of nowhere. Again, the US would argue came from a, a position of, of, of legitimacy, but not from the Chinese. And they've been looking to do deals ever since to wind those back to return to what would have been the status quo. And so, again, you go round and around in circles. Uh, at some point, you have to ask what is in our interests going forward, regardless of what came before, because a purist position doesn't get us very far. Um, last question on China. We have the PM's visit coming up. Um, my initial thought is that a lot of the deals that could have been done have been done, at least in the short term. So what do you see as the issues potentially that are in the future that we could be haggling over, bargaining over, potentially disagreeing about in the, you know, coming out of this visit and in the weeks and months thereafter? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there are a couple of things that are still, you know, on the table. And let's forget everyone's talking about wine as a, as a done deal. I mean, I think it probably is in the sense that the five-month review that the uh, trade minister and the foreign minister uh, have announced that uh, Beijing will undertake will probably almost inevitably or is very likely to, as it did with Bali, lead to those tariffs being unwound. But the government quite, can't quite actually bag that win yet. We've got to, got to wait the five months to go through the process and, and see what actually happens. Um, aside from that, there are still a few bits and pieces in the trade space that are uh, unfinished business, in particular lobsters are still not getting into China. Well, correction, they are, but they're getting in via Hong Kong and even Taiwan and another uh, rather grey zone <laughs> methodology via grey zone pathways, if you like. Um, uh, and uh, there's there are still some abattoirs that have got a bit of difficulty, um, you mm. know, getting um, getting product back in. That's complex because it's caught up with COVID restrictions. But um, there are still a few bits in the trade puzzle which are not yet finished. And so I'd imagine that the government will want them, you know, progressed. Uh, of course, it is worth remembering that there's still Yang Hanjun um, who remains, you know, in a frightful situation uh, in China with deteriorating health, a cyst mm. on his kidney. Um, uh, the government has been pressing just to get basic um, medical access, I, I gather, or to get ba the, the basic medical care that he needs. His situation remains fraught. His sentence continues to be pushed back. Most recently, it was pushed back again uh, until I believe... Seven times, I think. I can't remember if it's six or seven. Yeah, it's something like that. And by comparison, I think Chung Lei had Hearst pushed back five times. Five, correct. Which, again, makes me draw the inference that there might be a deal to be done, um, that the system is waiting for guidance from above, and that could depend upon a, a, some kind of political agreement. Correct. As distasteful as it is, oh, that seems to be the, the case. No one in this town is pretending that there was anything that it was anything other than a bargain or that Chung Lei wasn't used as a bargaining chip by, yeah. by Beijing. It's just the brute reality of the situation. Yeah. We saw that with the two Michaels. We're seeing it with Chung Lei, no doubt. Something similar is at play with Dr. Yang Hanjun and also other Australians who have not yet been named, but who find themselves in China currently in very difficult circumstances. The government won't talk about it publicly because of the sensitivities, because it may involve, uh, you know, the death penalty, for example, for, for, drug, mm -hmm. uh, for smuggling of drugs, uh, but who the government is also trying to, to, to work on. Uh, they're, they're, the government is still trying to work on their cases. So, um, you know, there are, there are quite a few outstanding ticket items, if you like, the government still has to work on. Inevitably, though, I think it's unlikely that there'll be any big bang announcements in any of these very fraught spaces during the visit. As we've seen, they tend to come shortly before or shortly after. We've had a few more shoes drop before than I might have guessed rather than after. 
which the government must see as pretty welcome. But I don't think we should necessarily expect any grand announcements. Um, I'd say the announcements that we see will probably more likely be modest in scope and less politically sensitive territory. For example, you know, looking at the renewable energy space, climate. The other thing which I think the government would like to see is just more of the the, the sort of day-to-day contact between Australia and China pick up again. A lot of high-level political contact has has been resumed, but some of the other sinew in the relationship in terms of like CEO exchanges and the like, they haven't yet been restored. There's a human rights dialogue. I'm not sure if the government wants to restore that or not, because the perception was that it would just bind our hands to a, a single day where we sort of, you know, pronounce a few things sternly and then feel obliged to shut up for the rest of the time. So much yeah. of the government wants that back. But there are still a few things in the dialogue space that could be pushed on. My main question, and I'm, I'm stealing this question entirely from uh, an excellent podcast, <laughs> one of your competitors and our friend <laughs> Rory Medcalf did with Richard Maud. Um, not that long ago, is what follows stabilisation? What's next? Is the relationship stabilised now? Can we stop talking about stabilisation? Or are we not quite there yet? If we are there, what does the next stage in the relationship look like beyond stabilisation? That's a really interesting question. I assume it's one that the foreign minister and others are grappling with, not just what it looks like substantively, but also how you explain and articulate that to the Australian people. Yeah, I mean, look, my answer to that question is that we're in a bargaining phase. But I think the second question you pose, which is how do you explain that? How do you characterize this ordinary diplomatic relations, you might call it, but ones that are, you know, where the stakes are quite high and the equities are very much cross cutting? Yeah, how you explain that, I, I do not know. But yeah, thank you. That's, that's terrific. Well, let's move on now to the PM's recent visit, state visit to Washington this past week. You know, we saw some announceables. You know, there's a technology safeguards agreement, which apparently will allow US companies to launch into space from, from Australian territory. Uh, we've seen some progress on the climate and clean energy compact that was first agreed to in May of this year. Uh, and I believe as part of that, there's some progress on critical minerals and supply chains. But in terms of sort of ongoing issues that are front and centre in the relationship, the big one is AUKUS and getting it through Congress. As I discussed with Zach Cooper last episode, the success of the submarine pillar of AUKUS really appears to depend upon the US's ability to build and repair submarines. Uh, And prior to the PM's arrival, we saw an extra $3.4 billion requested by the administration to be part of a defence spending package that was directly on the submarine um, um, building capability. During the visit, um, Biden emphasised that he's committed to getting it done, uh, and the PM himself mentioned in his major speech that he is sort of personally looking to lobby or discuss, shall we say, um, um, persuade even members of Congress to pass this legislation. What are you hearing about confidence, Stephen, on the Australian side that this actually can get through Congress and happen? Look, I am a little bit out of date on this because I didn't accompany the PM to Washington. um, And I think if I had, I would have got a much better sense um, out of that trip of where things are up to. Um, I think in brief, the government is publicly superlatively confident and pronouncing Mm. that confidence from the rooftops at every opportunity. Privately, I think they are less certain Um, exactly how deep the anxieties run, I'm not entirely sure. The problem is less the question as to how much congressional support there is for AUKUS, um, because the answer to that seems to be, well, it's pretty high. I mean, there are a few people who have got certain reservations, um, others who are trying to extract 
various things from the Biden administration um, as a price of doing business, etc. Um, but of course, as has been pointed out by many other people, um, you know, this is all caught up in a broader defense <laughs> defense bill, uh, which is potentially going to tug on an awfully large number of strings within Washington that touch on multiple anxieties and particularly febrile political sensitivities within the Congress as it stands at the moment, Mm. whether that's, you know, fiscal conservatives, um, Republicans angsty about uh, the amount of support that's been currently given to Ukraine Ukraine. and US expenditure on that. So it now might look like it's, because it's been pulled up into this omnibus bill, it, it actually in some way perhaps risks even more so getting caught up uh, in the broader um, political maelstrom um, that that characterises DC these days. Mm. Um, Exactly what the prospects are of us getting it through or not, and particularly the question as to whether the the Congress might pass the bill this year, I'm just not in a good position to say um, because I wasn't on the trip. But uh, hopefully I'll get a better readout on that in the next week or so. I I want to pose a a cheeky proposition to you just because it's fun and we're on a podcast you know we discussed in our last episode together how the labor party was really given no option right to to agree to AUKUS, delivered to them as as a fait accompli when they were in opposition and everyone knows the mammoth effort that is an expenditure that is going to be required zach put an argument last episode with me that there could well be more effective ways to spend uh, this money, such as with autonomous undersea submarines and and more long-range missiles. So I just wonder if there might be some inside the government on the political side or maybe even in the bureaucracy who just wouldn't secretly be too sad if it failed. It would create a political opportunity to reset things, to start again a blank slate, walk away from submarines entirely perhaps, um, and, 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 and use that money... Um, that has been sort of, you know, the political elite more broadly agrees we should be able to spend on some of the things that Zach was talking about. I mean, let me be clear, I, I'm not hoping for this because I, I actually just don't know. You know, I, the submarine pillar of AUKUS is a wager that might succeed or fail. An alternative approach, perhaps one that doesn't involve human piloted submarines, would also be a wager that might succeed or fail. But I think it's clear that it's not 100% certain that AUKUS, as presently constructed, will be seen 50 years from now is a success, and given how the Labor Party came to have stewardship of it, I just wonder, you know, what what do you wonder, Stephen? Oh, mate, what do I wonder? I wonder all sorts of things. Look, <laughs> there'd definitely be people within Labor who'd be very happy to see it fall over. Um, I think they're largely the people who've already told us they think that it's a, a terrible idea, um, yes. either publicly or occasionally privately, but there aren't that many of them. If there are others, uh, perhaps in the caucus, for example, who hold deep anxieties and uncertainties about AUKUS um, because of the sensitivity of the question and because of the Prime Minister's sensitivity over this question, they're certainly not coming to me um, to tell me about how how anxious they are about it. (laughs) The problem is, for the government, with that prospect of it falling over, is that we have already gone through multiple submarine contracts. It's worth remembering, right? just how enormous a rupture it was with the French, right? With the Barracuda when we ditched it. Worth remembering as well that we ditched the Japanese before them. And the, the, the Collins class, I'm not an expert on this, but according to all the people who know these things well, is simply not going to push us beyond, you know, even with the, the so-called life of type extension, it's just going to not push us anywhere beyond the 2030s, Right or the early part of the 2040s. So 
if we have to go back to the drawing board yet again <laughs> and find yet another submarine, this pushes that capability gap way into the never-never and means that we are inevitably, unless we come up with some sort of miraculous new stopgap solution, which I cannot see because there are, frankly speaking, not many submarines at the moment going off the shelf anywhere mm. that we would want to buy with the sort of capability that we are now told we need in mm. order to be vaguely credible in our region, we are going to be without a capability that all of the people inside the defence establishment and the government have told us now for the last three years is absolutely indispensable for our safety and security. Now, I loved your podcast, incidentally, with Zach. I thought it was brilliant. I have no way of judging. I'm just not enough of a military buff to judge whether there are other capabilities that within 20 years may will do the job much more effectively and much more cheaply without the vast political, economic and industrial-based risks that AUKUS you know, holds. Mm. Um, it's faintly terrifying to me that no one can make that prediction with any sort of certainty, even the people who know this stuff inside out. But I do think it would present the government with a vast political problem. And what they have told us would represent a terrifying and possibly almost existential capability gap, which presents all sorts of political and strategic questions um, that would be frightfully difficult for the government to grapple with. I don't feel like I've really answered your question. My, I, I feel like what I'm saying here, Darren, is that perhaps there'd be a few people who would be secretly relieved um, in Russell, DFAT and up here in, in Parliament House. But I, I, I guess or my guess is that an awfully larger number of people would not feel relief at all. They would feel mm. vast uncertainty bordering on terror. Let's then turn to how China came up in the bilateral meetings yeah, the PM was asked at a press conference, at the press conference with the president, whether he endorsed the phrase "extreme competition," which Joe Biden had used. I think a bit unfairly, it was sort of extracted out of context. That was Biden's immediate response. Read the whole paragraph of of the speech. Um, but the prime minister's response response was that look, competition is a reality, um, and he himself said in his speech that China did not see itself as a status quo power, but that it was nevertheless important to stabilize their relationship. On the other side, Biden was asked what he made of Australia's re-engagement with China. He was asked, can Australia trust Beijing? Should Australia do business with China? And his answer was pithy, you know, trust but verify. And I think that really sort of lines up with the Biden administration's approach, right? That efforts by the US to engage, we've seen, I think, five different officials visit um, and try to put guardrails as their terminology on the relationship. We've just seen um, Wang Yi uh, visit uh, by, uh, the US, um, I think, of course, to put things in place for a, a bilateral meeting between the leaders around the APEC visit um, summit later th uh, in, in November. So I think that America's efforts to, to build the relationship, um, not that they've yielded much, but they have created the political space for Australia to do what it wants to do anyway, for this government to do what it wants to do anyway. But it does raise the question then, look, how do you see any, the, the similarities or differences between the Biden administration and the Albanese government on China? Are they on the same page or are there some differences? I think there is a lot of common ground. Uh, Australian and American interests aren't identical here, obviously. That's a statement of the, uh, statement of the obvious, but uh, there are gaps. But there is an awful amount of, of common ground, particularly with the Biden administration. I think it becomes much more interesting and fraught a question with the first Trump administration and even more so potentially with a second should one mm. emerge. 
Um, but I think with the Biden administration, broadly speaking, there is a fair amount of strategic alignment. But there are some differences. And the one that immediately comes to mind is Taiwan. Now, it's perhaps unfair to point the finger at the Biden administration on this, um, because in many ways, it's been relatively disciplined. But when you look at the US political system as a whole, it seems to me to be in a very different space to Australia at the moment. And you might remember when uh, the when the then speaker, uh, Nancy Pelosi, visited, uh, visited Taiwan, um, the foreign minister barely hid her frustration and worry about that. I mean, it was a very tight-lipped response, um, but um, even publicly, she was making it pretty clear that Australia saw this as a very unnecessary, uh, costly, and potentially dangerous provocation that, that brought very few benefits uh, to Taiwan and plenty of risk. I mean, she never said it in those words, but it was, it was very clear uh, that there were deep reservoirs of anxiety about what this visit might might mean or do. Probably shared by the White House, to be fair, as well. Right. I think to some degree it was. But you don't get the sense that the Australian system, um, or at least the current government, it's a different question with the coalition, which is interesting, we can come back to that, um, is uneasy, is at all at ease with this process of slow semi-normalisation of ties between the US establishment. I think there is a feeling uh, inside the Australian establishment, even amongst those who are pretty sympathetic or very sympathetic to Taiwan, um, that what we're seeing is a shifting of the status quo, that it's just being salami sliced quite deliberately by many actors within the US political system. Uh, and even though I suspect there are many people in the Australian system who in one in one part of their hearts are very happy to see that because they like and value Taiwan, they see it as a crucial, um, a crucial country, um, they, are, they are much more worried about the strategic risks that that throws up. And of course, the great anxiety in Australia is that it results in some sort of conflagration um, with catastrophic global consequences. So I think that is one real point of difference. This government has been pretty damn disciplined on Taiwan. We can have a debate about whether that's smart or not, or whether it would make sense for Australia to recognise reality, you know, in a way that parts of the political system have and start treating Taiwan as a, as a political entity, if not a country, right? Um, I, I'm not going to weigh in on that there. There are people much smarter than me who can make that case one way or the other. But I think it is unarguable that there is a gap between where Australia's thinking is at, at that on that and where American thinking is on, on that. And that, for me anyway, is perhaps the most consequential and difficult point of contention, or at least just a point of difference between the mm. US and Australian political systems. Okay, there, there are two other parts of the PM speech that I want to highlight, continue the podcast tradition of, of digging a bit into leaders' speeches. The first is a sing, single line, quote, only dictatorships pretend to be perfect. Democracies are proud to be human, end quote. I just thought that was a nice way of putting the best possible face on the months of political dysfunction that we've seen in the US. We do now have a Speaker of the House of Representatives, but that probably wasn't the case when the speech was was drafted or first drafted. So I think that line kind of resonates and it will into the future. The second thing, um, I want to actually quote a longer segment. The PM speech focuses on US leadership, um, stressing its importance, but also acknowledging the challenges the US faces. And here's the quote. Striving for peace is hard work. It demands new effort 
and new resources, new creativity and new resolve. But whenever we consider the costs, the obstacles or the difficult or the difficulties of this course, we only need to consider the counterfactual, the alternative, because the closing off of economies, the collapse of diplomacy, the cutting off of ties, the burden of conflict and the devastation of war are catastrophic for the world, end quote. Now, I like that excerpt because it's just really good social science. Evaluating the merits of a given outcome must include consideration of the counterfactual. And this is especially true when it comes to China policy. There will always be ways of criticizing the government's policy choices, but I think the only criticisms worth taking seriously are those which are honest about the counterfactual, which acknowledge the trade-offs, and that every policy choice is going to have pros and cons. Any reaction to you from the speeches or those excerpts, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, I, I liked both those excerpts and they both actually, yeah, jumped out at me as well. I think the, I think the thing that, that jumps out to me with that, with that last longer passage is that it's, it's really aimed right at the heart of American um, isolationists, right? And in particular, congressional um, members, uh, members of Congress who might be particularly, let's say, under, I hate to say the words again, another potential Trump presidency, mm might be tempted to take the US down a, a more isolationist path. So I don't think that the Prime Minister's language there is aimed in any way at anyone in the Biden administration, not that you were suggesting that it was. Um, there's a reason, uh, you know, he delivered it in front of congressional um, staff and, uh, and, and uh, MPs rather than um, at the White House. Uh, and I do think it's it's aimed less at a future US administration and more at those members of Congress who will then still play an utterly crucial role, no no matter who's um, president after the next election. As for that uh, first line that you highlighted about the, the messy realities and messy glories of, uh, of democracy, look, I think that's uh, a bit of red meat, particularly the, the reference to autocracy. That's not something the prime minister really engages in that much. So mm. that was a little bit of red meat for, for the Americans, which I'm sure it went down fairly well. But more seriously, I think there is deeper anxiety in Australia uh, than either the prime minister or others are letting on about the state of, of US democracy right now. The prime minister was asked about uh, about this today on, on Insiders uh, and made a, a fairly oblique and cryptic comment about the need for democracy to be nourished everywhere in the world, but then went on to say that it wasn't his place to, of course, offer advice to US uh, domestic politicians, which is true. But I think the, the kind of hoary lines that are trot trotted out by everyone in the Australian system publicly, perhaps necessarily, uh, about democracies in both America and Australia being, you know, frightfully messy things that just do the most wacky things at, at, at on occasion, do gloss over the depth of anxiety here about what domestic political dysfunction might look like in the US over the coming decade, and about what a deeply polarised US political system might mean for Australia and the region. I think my personal feeling is that there is actually more anxiety in Canberra about polarisation over the medium term than there is about resurgent isolationism. The two are intertwined, of course, in complex yeah. ways. But it's watching the US political system grind repeatedly to a halt <laughs> that really really, I think, makes people in Canberra stay up late at night staring aimlessly at the ceiling. It's, um, 
that's that's the thing that really worries people. I understand why the Prime Minister doesn't want to articulate that. I wouldn't if I happen to be in yeah. that position. Not that I ever will be. But um, I, I think those rather pat lines about democracies being messy, whilst true, is only half the story. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Steve. Well, let's move on. Last time you joined me, uh, we really structured the episode around things that are on the cutting room floor. You know, in, in your day job, you have to you're heavily edited. You can't put everything um, on the airwaves and into news stories that you would like to. So I wanted to give you the opportunity here to sort of give us a bit more colour and detail on something that you've been working on, but didn't necessarily have the space to put everything into uh, into a, into a story. Because here, of course, this audience craves this detail, um, and 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 you can dig as deep and dive as deep as you would like. So what have you got for us? So I was tempted by two things. One is the uh, the fact that uh, tomorrow, Monday, uh, the 30th, we're going to have a, a new president of Nauru, which is actually really interesting, potentially on a, a number of fronts, and something that the Taiwanese uh, government, amongst others, is watching very, very closely. Uh, but I've decided even for this podcast, that's, that's too niche. Instead, <laughs> um, I'm just going to point to a story that I did actually write this week past, which I found fascinating um, and which people might be curious to hear a little bit more about, which is a UN motion that Fiji signed uh, earlier this month, along with 50 other countries condemning human rights violations in, uh, in Xinjiang. Now, what was fascinating about this is that Fiji signed on with a bunch of, to use a phrase, usual suspects, right, that you would expect to sign on the US, the UK, the EU, Taiwanese allies, both in Central America and in the Pacific. But it was the only... Australia too. And Australia. Yeah, of course, Australia too. But it was the only Pacific island country that has links with the PRC that recognises Beijing rather than Taiwan to sign on. Not only that, it was the only country in the Pacific and Southeast Asia to sign on to it. Not a single other uh, country in either Southeast Asia or in the Pacific, so in our immediate region for lack of a better phrase, actually signed on. Japan did, South Korea did not, but but it really did jump out at me. Anyway, this week I got wind that this had caused a real kerfuffle within Fiji, but that it had also unsurprisingly drawn a pretty stern reaction internally from China, which then went about, as you might expect, pressing Fiji to back down. And in the end, that's exactly what happened. We haven't yet seen a final statement, but a a fairly senior source within the the Fijian government told us just a few days ago that uh, the UN uh, office in New York had acted without authorization from the centre and that Fiji would put out a statement withdrawing from, or I guess effectively, more realistically, distancing itself from uh, its decision to join that statement. Now, a couple of things are going on here. One that's interesting, one thing that is interesting, of course, uh, is that this is going to be a source of disappointment to, you know, the United Kingdom uh, and Australia, which has been trying to build a broader coalition within this region to try and press China on on human rights, is aware that China ratchets up the pressure enormously on states like this when this happens in order to to give itself the, uh, the appearance of being able to say that in the end, it's only the West and a few American hangers-on who are criticising it over Xinjiang. Uh, Two, it also speaks to a level of dysfunction, although exactly how deep this dysfunction goes, I'm not sure, within the Fijian system. It certainly wasn't coordinated particularly well. Uh, If it was, then it wasn't signed off on by everyone in the political system. I'm not convinced, incidentally, it was just one diplomat uh, in New York just uh, signing blithely on a line without anyone in Suva having any sort of idea. Um, 
but it does point to the fact that there are still very big differences of opinion uh, within Fiji. Uh, and it's a reminder of uh, the fact that Fiji, it seems, will back down here of the limits of Australian uh, and Western diplomacy on the on the fraught question of uh, human rights abuses in, in China. There is still zero appetite or very little appetite within any countries in Southeast Asia or the Fiji to be drawn into this space. That's partly because some are, symp- some are sympathetic, uh, but simply believe it's not worth the candle because of their enormously consequential relations with uh, China, both economic and, and other, uh, and also because there's just a deep well of cynicism on top of that within uh, other countries in the region, a feeling that the US chooses and its allies choose to prioritise Xinjiang purely because it's a useful stick with which it can beat China rather than out of any deep-seated or genuine uh, sympathy uh, for the Uyghurs and others in Xinjiang. So it was a fascinating little ep- episode mm. um, and uh, I think a, a, a telling one. Yeah, I would love you know, to sort of spend some time thinking about distinguishing or trying to separate that cynicism, which is real um, and has some legitimate basis to it, from sort of the impacts of Chinese statecraft. Uh, you know, the, the, in the last you know, a few months, we've seen um, several sort of trade blockages, you might say, that uh, that have arguably political roots to them. Um, the Fukushima uh, case, yes, there was nuclear wastewater, but all Japanese seafood was banned, coinciding with the Camp David summit with the Koreans and the Americans. The Taiwanese um, saw yet another trade blockage, this one on mangoes, which coincided with Vice President Lai stopping over in the United States. And in Vietnam, we saw reports not explicitly acknowledged by the Vietnamese government, but reports circulating of multiple blockages of exports across the land border in agricultural products in the lead up to President Biden visiting Vietnam for the historic comprehensive strategic partnership that was signed. And so to me, this sort of seems like this is a normal part of Chinese statecraft, that economic levers will get pulled when there are political grievances, not necessarily with the expectation that it will reverse a given policy, in many ways, these are attribution to things that have already happened or are going to happen with, and that China can do nothing about. But they create an environment, an expectation that there are going to be consequences when you when you do things that, that cross you know, Beijing's interests. And so, look, there are costs and benefits to this. The benefit is many countries are, are not going to see it as worth it when interests are marginal. And the human rights situation in Xinjiang is clearly a marginal interest for Fiji, as it is for most countries uh, across the region. And there are downsides, right? Because, you know, most countries are going to perceive a heightened degree of political risk attached with economic relations. Not that that will necessarily see that a diversification um, in, in a major sense, but at the margins, you might see some deals not being done because of the sense that everything now is, is potentially uh, can be uh, held hostage to political grievances. So th- I think that's just the, that's just the reality now. Um, and we would expect then, because of China's large economic power and political power, countries, this is you know, this kind of decision, which came from somewhere, <laughs> being walked back when everyone got a clear visibility of it, doesn't seem to be surprising at all. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And, you know, the spectre of uh, Chinese economic coercion or punishment or retaliation obviously now hangs over every decision that governments around the world from the US down make. Um, and it's unsurprising that countries that remain hugely reliant on China are worried by that, particularly when China has the tendency, and tactically it's pretty effective, to ratchet up the pressure at the smallest perceived infringement on its 
so-called core interests, um, in particular Xinjiang, which is about as sensitive as they come. Incidentally, someone sent me this week, uh, um, Darren, a, a letter that the Chinese uh, diplomat to Liberia uh, in Africa um, uh, sent to the authorities there after they joined this motion as well. Um, it might have been the only African nation, I believe, with ties to PRC to back this statement. I, I have to double check that. Anyway, it is magnificently splenetic. It's a good, ooh, I think it's five or four, four or five pages long. Uh, and it is full of the most overheated rhetoric amaze you can imagine, uh, including the ominous, uh, the ominous finishing line. I'll read it out. Any consequences from this vote on the bilateral cooperation shall be borne by the Liberian side. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and uh, he also points out in this letter the uh, the, the Chinese ambassador that uh, yeah Liberia is hopelessly uh, isolated within Africa and is guilty of uh, of uh, introducing this toxicity into all of China Africa relations because of its own perfidy. So because the Chinese government is so effective at ratcheting up the rhetorical scale to one thousand uh, at the slightest uh, hint of any uh, infringement on these questions. Uh, because they are not scared of turning to uh, using the economic levers and because it has so many economic and other levers that it can pull, it's probably unsurprising uh, that many countries in our region in particular uh, look at uh, look at the question like this and just decide it isn't worth the candle. Incidentally, there are murmurs, Darren, that a very similar letter is floating around the Pacific uh, in or in Suva, but uh, I have not been able to confirm that. And if the letter exists, unhappily, no one is yet willing to leak it to me. But if there's anyone listening to this podcast who has seen this letter, um, get me on signal, please. <laughs> Stephen, our final item, I want to first sort of observe and thank you for a public service that you perform, which is sitting through estimates, Senate estimates hearings, I think for their entirety when they occur. And that's happened over the past week. And so I wanted to ask first why uh, you choose to spend the better part of an entire week sitting through estimates. What is it that attracts them to you as a, a journalist? Uh, and, and how do you use the information that, that you get? I know you tweet about it, but is that the extent or does it make itself into stories as well? No, they're, they're really important, Darren. And look, look I, I wouldn't wish estimates on, on anyone, um, let, alone, uh, let alone people who aren't steeped in the uh, finer points of Australian politics. They can be dreary, they can be dull, uh, and there is at times an awful lot of posturing on both sides. And also just some magnificent examples of bureaucraties that are trotted out in desperate attempts to avoid perfectly reasonable questions, which drive me up the wall. Um, Anyway, but they do serve a really important function in the parliament, and not just because it's an important exercise in transparency more broadly, but because it it gives the opportunity to senators to ask really detailed, granular questions uh, on the expenditure of public funds. And this opens up if not a huge number of opportunities for new stories, it just actually gives us an opportunity as journalists, as it does to anyone who wants to, to tune in, anyone can just pop on the Parliament website and watch, to actually get a better sense of the finer details, at least the finer mechanics informing public policy across a whole range of areas. And that's really valuable. And on top of that, yeah, you do get stories out of it, not a huge amount, but uh, you do actually at times get um, some really valuable bits of context and occasionally even a, a news story that you simply wouldn't get without this uh, this mechanism. Some people complain bitterly about estimates. They say it's simply not worth the enormous amount of time, energy and, and money, I guess, that it that it hoovers up, um, the amount of lost hours with you know senior public servants 
you know, doing fake estimates practice, you know, with their yeah. colleagues, employing expensive consultants to, 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 to give them that rehearsal, the frightening number of man and woman hours that are plowed into uh, briefing said senior public servants to make sure they aren't left adrift in front of the table. But I, for what it's worth, you know, think it's still a worthwhile exercise and uh, long may it continue. Well, on that vein, Stephen, can you share with us one tidbit, you know, one interesting thing that happened this week? Uh, there are heaps, but um, the one that I, I think I will uh, point out is when uh, Mike Burgess, um, the head of ASIO, was asked about the, the Khalistan issue. Now, this was when a Green senator, uh, David Shoebridge, was asking about uh, the assassination in Canada, uh, the Nijar uh, slaying, and was he basically asked, Burgess, uh, was there any evidence um, or any suggestion uh, that linked to countries other than Canada. In other words, when the Five Eyes got together to, to chat about this, both in the lead up and afterwards, uh, did they have any intel that pointed towards, you know, potentially similar activities or alleged activities uh, occurring uh, in other Five Eyes countries? Burgess's comment was, quote, I wouldn't comment on that other than to say, of course, we look at every example we're aware of. Always context matters in these cases. We have to take that into consideration. But our assessment is that we do not believe that this will happen here in Australia. Is it possible? Yes. Do we have information to suggest it is going to happen? Not right now. Now, Darren, how many people in RGKC <laughs> and other parts of the world in Canberra really wish that he stopped after... Is it going to happen in Australia as opposed to going on to, is it possible? <laughs> I don't know what the answer is, but I can only imagine that a few of them would have been screaming at their screens, shut up, <laughs> shut up now. But it was obviously very deliberately delivered. I think it's similar to his comment a week or so earlier when he talked quite openly uh, about the fact that he had, quote, no reason to disbelieve Canada's allegation of potential links between the, uh, the the slaying and the Indian government. But Senate Estimates is a really useful place, not just for us to pick up on that sort of thing, but also for, for senior officials, uh, particularly those with an awful lot of wriggle room like Mike Burgess, to deliver messages precisely like that to inform not just Australian government calculations, but public perceptions and potentially Indian government calculations mm. as well. That's another reason why I think they're useful. All foreign policy is domestic policy. All domestic policy is foreign policy once again. All right. Well, let's wrap things up there, Stephen. That's been a terrific conversation, but we like to finish with the recommendation, reading, listening, and watching. I'll go first to give you a moment to gather your thoughts. I want to recommend the recent essay published by Evan Osnos in The New Yorker titled China's Age of Malays. Uh, Osnos was, of course, a former correspondent uh, in China and wrote uh, an excellent book, Age of Ambition, if I remember the title correctly, um, which is really, really good. You know, this, I've, I haven't finished this essay yet, but it, actually I'm, re I'm reminded of our discussion a bit earlier about the Prime Minister's comment of the need to, to nourish democracies. You know, all political systems decay. All political systems have moments of stagnation and they have need to renew themselves. And as Alan and I discussed uh, many times on the podcast, one of the virtues of democracy is that you have elections and you have opportunities to reset things, bring in new ideas. Sometimes they're going to be better, sometimes they'll be worse, but it's a, an opportunity for renewal. Um, and yes, we have 
the American system going through some pretty fraught times right now where even elections don't seem to be able to create that renewal, but it is a process and it, you know we are proud to be human, to, to quote the Prime Minister. All that is context for this essay, which is about stagnation in the Chinese system and raising questions about, well, what is the mechanism for renewal when you don't have elections? And it's re- it's as important, um, you know, to think of all the staring at the walls in the middle of the night that you described, Stephen, when, when Australian officials are worrying about what's going to happen in the United States, it's as important to, to ask, how can the Chinese system renew itself? How can it, how can, you know, how can it fix many of the deep structural problems that it faces? You know, we saw with, with zero COVID, right, the seeds of a policy success, every policy success sees its own failure and the inability of the Chinese system to adjust to the Omicron variant created a huge catastrophe in terms of lives lost. So, you know, it's a long essay, deeply thoughtful uh, and very much worth your time for exactly the same reasons that it's worth paying attention to political decay in the US system as well. What do you have for us? Yeah, thanks, Darren. I'm really looking forward to that essay. I still haven't read it because I let my New Yorker subscription lapse and I'm cursing myself because uh, it's exactly the sort of thing that I would really like to read. So I'll have to track down a copy. Look, what I'm going to recommend is entirely unrelated to foreign policy today. Uh, It is a book that I picked up really recently called Earthly Delights, A History of the Renaissance. I'm only about a third of the way through it, um, and it's not for everyone. But my God, if you like the Renaissance, if you are interested in the Renaissance, if you have, as I do, a bit weirdly, a bit of a fixation with Renaissance art in particular, this is a beautiful combination of critical uh, of, of, of art criticism and history, essentially, uh, that paints a really vivid picture of what the Renaissance, particularly now the early Renaissance, uh, was like through uh, the uh, the medium of art. Uh, it's a it's a it's a wonderful piece of work, and I'm really enjoying it. Terrific! Thanks very much. Well, another fantastic conversation, Stephen. So, thanks for joining me again today. Darren, thanks so much. That's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. I thank Corbin Duncan for research and audio editing today, and of course, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. 